Let's pray, and we'll, we'll get started on our time here today. Father, thank you that we can study your word once again. Thank you that uh, we have um, just the wealth of knowledge that comes through your word. And thank you for your spirit who instructs us and teaches us and gives us assurance from your word. Pray that you would continue to sharpen us and as we think through some difficult things and as we think about how we can be uh, faithful witnesses for you, I pray that you'll instruct us and help us even as we study here today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we are still laying some foundations for our apologetic methodology. Um, Just to kind of just a little bit of where we've been. We've been talking specifically about presuppositional apologetics that appeals to the power of God's Word to refute erroneous worldviews. This approach is going to attack and go after, and I say attack, I don't mean that in like 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 a nasty kind of way, like just like an angry attack or anything, but it, it does attack. It does go after the presuppositions of non-Christians. Uh, it's seeking to expose the futility therein, and it relies upon the Scriptures to convict of sin and of truth. And we've been beginning, beginning the process of laying down some foundational texts that help us understand, okay, this is the uh, this is the biblical approach. These are, there are some biblical principles and foundations that lead us to think this way and to go this direction with this approach. So far, we've not yet gone into actual methodology for how we do apologetics with this system. And we're not even going to get there today. We're, we're going to get there, but I'm, I'm continuing to lay down foundational principles that help, that will inform our methodology when we do get there but we're not yet at the point of discussing the methodology itself. Last week we looked at Romans chapter 1, and we saw a variety of conclusions from that text. We saw how there is already sufficient evidence in the world. There is natural revelation leaving mankind with no excuse. Uh, we just look around the world around us, and we, can, we just intuitively know that there is a creator. It's, that's, it's something that's built within us. God has made himself known. It's, it's clear to mankind in that way, such that they're without excuse. God's invisible nature, his eternal power, it's, it's been clearly revealed. But despite that reality that there is sufficient evidence, man's nature, because of the sin that is a part of us, we suppress and we replace the truth. We just kind of hold down that truth. Can we th- use the analogy? There's like the jet stream shooting up at the water park, and we're just trying to hold it down, hold it down, but that water's just it's shooting up and spraying everywhere. We're trying to hold it down as best as we can, suppressing the truth and then replacing it with a lie. Rather than embracing the truth, our natural proclivity is to re- suppress and replace it. Talked about the noetic effect of sin, uh, that sin's pervasiveness and its effect upon our ability to reason. It says that our, our, our hearts were darkened, our, we became futile in our thinking, and just our ability to think through things and reason has been tainted by sin. And we see, as a result, consequently, there's no neutrality in the midst of this. You know, sometimes we think, like, oh, yeah, I'm just trying to. Um, I remember having a conversation with a young man, uh, this was several years ago. Uh, where he was interested in maybe bringing his kids to church, um, yeah, maybe just every once in a while, even though he himself didn't believe in anything about the Bible. He, was, he wanted to be just, okay, you know, just, uh, I'll raise you in a neutral way, and you can just decide whatever you want to decide based on your own, and I'll expose you to the, all the ideas, and it's just completely up to you to decide. And 
when we study texts like Romans chapter 1, and even as we're, the text we're going to study today, we really see there really is no neutrality. There's a biblical worldview, and then there's all the other non-biblical worldviews, and there's no neutrality in the midst of it. You're either believing what the Bible says or you're not, and there's a variety of what fits into the not category, but it's either one of those two things. There's no neutrality. And so what you have is in an apologetic encounter, there's a clash of worldviews going on. There's the biblical worldview, there's the non-biblical worldview. They're at odds with one another. And in our conversations and our evangelism and our apologetics, there's that clash that's coming out. And when you're trying to expose, hey, you know, your worldview, it, it doesn't make sense in light of X, Y, Z. And here's why the Christian faith actually makes more sense of these things. Uh, there's a clash going on. There's the biblical worldview. There's the invented man-made worldview. There really is no neutral ground. But despite there being no neutral ground, there is common ground. There still remains a point of contact for us as we're engaging with unbelievers. There is still an innate knowledge of God that's within the heart of mankind. There's still an innate knowledge, uh, the conscience that God has built, has put his law within the heart of mankind. So he knows morality instinctively. There remains points of contact by the virtue of being made in the image of God that we can appeal to and we can use that to our advantage as a witness against this unbeliever's worldview. And so we can, we, there is a way that we can begin to dialogue with individuals, even individuals who would claim to be hostile to Christianity, individuals who would claim to be neutral. We know they're not actually neutral. Neutrality is not, uh, it doesn't exist as we've discovered there still remains this point of contact. And so that's, that's kind of where we were last week. This week, we're going to shift our study to an area known as epistemology. That's a big word, and it's not a word that is, um, it's not an essential word for us. It's once you start getting into some of the the deeper ends of some of this kind of study, it becomes a word you would have to know. But for our purposes today, we're just, it's the theory of knowledge, the study of knowledge. How do we know things? How, well, can we, we can even ask this question. Can we know things? Can we know anything with certainty? If we can, how is that possible? This is the study of epistemology. It's the study of knowledge of how we can know things. The Christian worldview asserts that there are things that can be known with certainty. A secularist worldview must admit that there is certain knowledge, there uh, there isn't necessarily certain knowledge. Like, there's no certainty possible. There's probable knowledge, there's probabilities. And so, like, if you were to interact with someone who is just coming from a very naturalistic worldview, uh, they're going to look at things and they're going to say, well, this is probably true. There's a very high percentage chance that this is true. There's a very high probability that the Big Bang happened or that, you know, there's this evolution that occurred. But they have to speak in probabilities, and they will all admit to this reality. They will all admit to this reality, or they should admit, the, the ones who are studied enough will admit, and that they're on record as having done so, that they can't know anything with certainty. Well, the Christian worldview says, no, there can be certainty. We don't have to rely on mere probabilities. And this is what I would argue is one of the weaknesses of some like the evidentialist approaches where 
they can present evidences that can lead in the direction of probabilities to reason to the Scriptures, whereas we're going to say, no, we're going to start with the foundation of the Word of God, and we're going to reason from the Scriptures, not to the Scriptures, and we're going to argue for certain knowledge, a, that there is certainty, uh, absolute truth that can be discovered through the Word of God. So the Christian worldview is founded upon the revelation of God, and therefore there is certainty about the things that God has revealed. Because our worldview is founded upon the Word of God, the revelation of God, there is certainty about the things that God has revealed. And all true knowledge flows from the biblical worldview. All true knowledge flows from the biblical worldview. So think about that for a moment. All true knowledge flows from a biblical worldview. Does that mean that all knowledge is contained in the Bible? There's no geometry in the Bible. There's no geometry in the Bible. Correct. Sorry. <laughs> oh yeah, true enough. There's there are dimensions in, that are given for uh, for buildings and such within the Bible. So in a sense, there's geometry in the Bible. There you go. Mathematical proofs aren't in the Bible, um, and yet we find the truth that there is. It, is it true that two plus two is four? Is that true? Has that always been true? Will that always be true? Why? Because why? Someone would be smart and make up numbers. Well, there's more to it than that. Right. That is true because the biblical worldview is true. Phil. Well, Scripture is saying that uh, all things were made and created by God. Mm-hmm. This includes all of mathematics. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That's the thing. So, and that's that's the point that these things flow from the biblical worldview, we can be certain that math works, that logic works, because the Bible is true, because the Christian worldview is true, because God is real. Otherwise, mathematics can change. Yes. Is present in the universe he created, and so we can understand it, and we can measure it, and we can know that order. Yes. The scientific method is inherently a Christian idea. The process of how we discover things within the world, all of this is distinctly Christian. 
So there's a, uh, there's a logical argument, and I'm just going to introduce it today. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because that can, that can, we can go down a rabbit hole with this. But there's a logical argument that asks this question. And when you first hear it, you, you kind of have to like, okay, what does this mean for a second? At least that's how it was for me. <laughs> the logical argument asks this question, what are the preconditions of intelligibility? What are the preconditions for knowledge? The idea is that in order to have intelligible and rational discussion, something else must be true to give its logic. Uh, looks like she, um, Ruth Broder looks like. Okay, I didn't um, see Ruth, I just saw yeah. someone we don't normally see. Yeah. Um, we have... Uh, Let's see. The, the idea, in order to have intelligible and rational discussion, something else must be true to give logic its foundation. And the question is, well, what's that thing? What is the thing that gives the foundation that makes logic work, that makes intelligibility work? Good morning. And so as we start thinking through the Christian worldview, it, it is the Christian worldview that provides that foundation. It is the, the God of the Scriptures. Uh, it, and it's really less of a thing and more of a person. It is the Lord, right? It is God. Um, if the Christian God did not exist, we could not know anything with certainty. You're welcome to have a seat wherever. I know we're, we're kind of full on space a little bit, but um, we usually have more tables up, but they're piled high with stuff in the back room this week, so I apologize for that. Uh, Good morning. Nice to have you here today. Uh, just just uh, for way of context, we're, we're discussing uh, concepts of an uh, area of study called apologetics, which speaks of how we know that the Bible is true, how we know that God is, is true and the things that He has told us in His Word, how we know all that's true. Uh, and that's what we're discussing uh, in, in a little bit of a series, and that's what we're discussing in particular this week. Um, so we're talking about these things of the Christian worldview, and it provides the foundation and the basis for logic, for reason, for knowledge, all of these things. All of this discussion can get really philosophical, can get really heady, uh, and there are directions and lines of reasonings that we can go down that can be difficult to follow, and I'm not trying to go down all those really rabbit holes uh, today or really even throughout the whole, all of this. I do believe that that, that, that approach is, is logical, and most importantly, it's biblical. And I do think we have biblical data to help, help us understand why this is the case. And that's where I want to take us now, is to the biblical text. We're going to spend this week and next week talking about the concepts of knowledge, how we know things, and how God's Word informs us, and what the relationship is between faith and reason. What is the relationship between faith and reason? Are we called to have blind faith, or are we called to have a reasonable faith, a faith that is uh, grounded in more than, than just uh, warm, fuzzy feelings? Says question Scripture says to question everything? Yeah, f- find me a reference, and we'll... we'll yeah, yeah. Um, Test everything and hold to what is good. Test okay. okay. Yeah. I can hold that. Yeah. That's. Uh, I would. Uh, yeah. That's a little different. 
slightly different uh, approach. There's, the question everything is a skeptic's mindset right. and is a, is a discerning mindset. Right. Yes, there's a, dis, there's a distinction there. Yes, and that is the right, that is the right approach. So let's, let's turn to Scripture now. Um, let's open up Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, and uh, we're a little bit tight on time, so I'm just going to kind of read through some of this and make some comments as we go, and then I'll populate our slide with some conclusions from the text. Verse 1, for I want you to know how great, again, okay, let me just set the context a little bit. This is Paul writing to the Colossian church. The Colossian church is dealing with some, uh, some false ideas that were coming into the church and trying to lead the people away from Jesus Christ, trying to lead them away from what the Scripture said were true. And Paul is trying to call them back to and say, no, 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 you don't need to embrace all these false ideas of the world that are out there that are invading the church. We need to hold to what the Word of God has to say. And so as he gets into chapter 2, he starts talking about that. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, that's another city where there's another church, And for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. Paul says, I I have a great struggle for you. I desire this for you. I desire that your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So Paul wants to encourage the people, but as he writes, it's not just like a it's not just a superficial, like, emotional support kind of encouragement or comfort. The word encouragement could be translated as comfort. It's not a superficial, uh, surface-level emotional support in that way, but it's really, it runs much deeper than that. He says, I want your hearts to be encouraged to a purpose, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. He wants our minds to be engaged. He wants our our thinking to be stimulated. I want want you to reach the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. There's things that I want you to learn. There's things I want you to embrace. And so this is what Paul's desire is for the church, uh, that they would have assurance in the gospel, that they may know the gospel, that they may know Christ, and that the the knowledge uh, they they possess would have full... um, in that knowledge, they would possess full assurance in the knowledge of the gospel of Christ. So Paul connects knowledge, he connects understanding, and he connects these at different points within the letter, but he, you know, they're connected here once again. And each time it is the knowledge of God or the understanding that comes through the word of God. Uh, earlier in the book, um, oh, so I guess that's one of our conclusions we can draw, is that Paul wants us to grow in assurance. Um... Early in the book, he also speaks of the mystery of Christ taking up residence within his people, giving us the hope of glory. And as we get into verse 3, he says, In whom, in Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Many scholars believe that Paul is making reference to uh, the book of Proverbs, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. 
It says that the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up, that's, that's a, um, the word for treasures. He stores up, he treasures sound wisdom for the upright. In the book of Proverbs, wisdom is personified almost as a person. The book of Proverbs speaks of, of wisdom as like a person. And uh, it, it doesn't take a lot of thinking and a lot of connecting the dots to consider, oh, you know, Jesus Christ is in many ways that person. Jesus Christ is the personification of wisdom. He is wisdom incarnate in a way. So when we see that, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Everything that is true ultimately comes from Jesus Christ, be that directly or indirectly. Everything that is true comes through Jesus Christ, either directly or indirectly. That's an important aspect of understanding of where, how we can know things, how, how we can have certain knowledge. Everything that is true ultimately comes from Jesus Christ. But he goes on to say that there are individuals that don't teach according to what God's Word has to say. Verse 4, I say this in order that no one may delude you. Another uh, translation for delude is to deceive you with plausible arguments or speculative arguments or, or uh, I like there was one paraphrase I read this week, read this week fancy talk. As it just the, the, the words that sound good, they, they seem like they might make sense. It might, it, oh, you know, that sounds reasonable. I, I, I see the logic. I see how you're tracking there. But he says, I'm warning you. There are individuals who are teaching things, and it's not the Word of God. It's not what God's Word says. All the wisdom and the knowledge, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, and I say that so you understand and recognize that you will not be taken in. You won't be deceived by these fancy talk, these nice-sounding argumentations. It, it, it sounds good. It sounds plausible. Yeah. Yes, so in, in this hallway back here, uh, there's a, a doorway to your left, and there's a bathroom there. It's, it looks a little, there's, a, there's like a bed in there. You can just ignore that. The, <laughs> The normal bathrooms are out of order this week, so that's just a warning. Yeah. Right. Um. Yeah. Not the normal situation. So we've got this situation, there are these individuals are trying to deceive and trying to convince of what is not true through fraudulent argumentation, and this is what he wants you to avoid. I don't want you to be taken in by these, these teachers. I don't want you to be, be led astray by these things. So you need to be grounded in truth, not stuff that just feels good, but stuff that's actually true. Things that make you think, things that make you ponder the cross, things that take you to Jesus Christ, things that make you reflect upon Scripture. Feeling good isn't enough. And he's going to go on to say, now there's, there's several verses here, therefore, well, I skipped a verse, uh, plausible arguments, he says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ, I'm delighting to see this. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. You received Him by faith. Walk in Him by faith. 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. So there's, again, there's this, there's this building upon a foundation. You were taught this way. There's information being communicated. Continue to grow in those things. Right? The Christian faith is not just about, I'm kind of emphasizing this point a little bit today, but it's not just about how we feel and just about just feeling good about how we were in church or, or just whatever else. We're to be taught things. We're to be instructed. We're to be using our minds for the glory of God in this way. But notice verse 8, and this is where we're kind of bringing things home now. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it. We're going to be on guard. Be alert. Right? There's, there's different philosophies. There's different things out in the world that are going to try to take us captive. Well, we have, a, we have a vigilance that needs to be a part of our lives. See to it. Pay attention. Watch out. Be vigilant in this area. That no one takes you captive. That word for captive literally speaks of being a prisoner of war. There's an ideological warfare, the Christian worldview versus all the other false worldviews of the world. There's a war, there's a spiritual war going on, and, and there, are, there are spiritual prisoners of war, and we can be captives of falsehood, or we can be captives of Christ. This is where Paul is going to speak in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 about taking every thought captive to Christ. It's a different Greek word, but it's a related word that speaks of a similar idea. That who are you going to be held captive by? False ideas or true ideas? Falsehood or Christ? He speaks of uh, philosophies and empty deceits. The way it's, it's structured there, we could almost say empty and deceitful philosophies. There's these ideas, there's these formulations that mankind has put together that they're empty. There's no substance there. They may seem on the surface and they may seem on the face of it to have value in some way, but upon examination, upon biblical examination, we find out that it's empty. It's frivolous. It is, there's no actual depth there, and it's deception. It's false. It's lies. It's not true. This, of course, assumes that there is objective truth and that truth is not merely subjective, right? That there is falsehood. There is truth. And then he says that these philosophies, these empty deceitfulness, they are according to human tradition. All right, so we have to ask ourselves, do we want to follow mere, mere man, just a human beings, or do we want to follow Christ? That's our options. There's no middle ground. According to the human tradition or according to the elemental spirits of the world, the elemental, the, these are the spiritual for, forces of darkness that are at play. Jesus himself said that, that Satan is the father of lies. He's the inventor of, of falsehood, right? He, he's, he told the very first lie. Well, do you want to follow that or do you want to follow Christ? Do you want to follow falsehood or Christ? The elemental spirit, spiritual forces of darkness that are at play within the world. Do you want to follow that? If the answer is no, then the only alternative is to follow after Jesus 
Christ. And that's, that's where he says that there's a, there is a captivity. Now you can be captive to Christ and all the goodness and the, and the glory and the salvation that that brings. Or you can be held captive by human tradition, elemental spirits of the world, empty, deceitful philosophies. That's, there's no middle ground between those two things. Those are the options. So we see that the, the fundamental issue with, as we understand God's Word and as we understand what truth is and how all truth flows from a biblical worldview, we have to start here. We have to start with God's Word. We have to start with what He has object, excuse me, objectively revealed if we're to avoid getting swept away in all of these false ideas of the world. Now, how does this apply to apologetics? Wisdom and knowledge flow from Christ. If there is a philosophy, if there is a worldview, if there is a way of thinking through things that doesn't begin with God and doesn't begin with His Word, does not begin with Christ, it has a faulty foundation. And so when we're reasoning with people, there's the, there's a opportunity in the midst of our discussions to try to parse out and ask questions about where, where's the foundation of our thinking? Is it, is it grounded in something of substance or is it grounded in the empty and deceitful prof, uh, philosophies of the world? We can press into that. We can ask questions to expose those sorts of things. Growing in our knowledge of Christ is the only means, effective means of combating error. As we engage the world, as we begin to talk with people, as, when there are false ideas that are presented within the world, the only way of identifying those, discerning those, and then bringing truth to bear is to pursue the knowledge of Christ, knowing God's Word, knowing what He has said, what He has communicated. This is the only effective means of combating error. Finally, we also see once again that there really is no neutrality. Our minds are always captivated by something. Are we going to be held captive by error? Or are we going to be held captive by Christ? There's no middle ground between those two things. There's truth and there's not truth. There's the biblical worldview. There's the unbiblical worldview. There's Christ and there's everything else. And so when we begin to engage with, with people in the world and we begin to uh, have apologetic and evangelistic conversations and we're trying to tell them about Jesus and tell them about what Christ did for, himself, uh, for us on the cross and how all who believe in Christ can have life in His name, when we're trying to help them understand all of these things and there's different ideas that get, well, what about this? Well, what about that? Well, what about this? We can recognize that, you know, all of these different philosophies, all these different ideas that are being raised against the knowledge of Christ they have a faulty foundation. In, in a way, they can't even use logic and reasoning. They have to borrow from a biblical worldview to even try to use logic and reasoning against a biblical worldview. That kind of shows its own futility in the midst of it. Any thoughts or questions about all of this? And this is kind of, um, there's a lot in this passage that we're just really kind of scratching the surface of it. Any thoughts or comments?
You all, I thought you were shouting around. You're, I see a hand move and I go, yes, I see that hand. <laughs> no, it's right. He's at work within all of us, right? And we're all we're all learning these things, and um, yeah. going to struggle with different things along the way, right? And we're, there's, um, you know, patterns of sin, especially sins that have been ingrained within us for many, many years. It takes time to work through those things and to break those habits and to begin to set and develop new habits. Uh, so it's, it's not that there is a, uh, we're never expecting perfection, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and James talks about how we all stumble in many ways, and so we we recognize the battle, and we recognize the the difficulty and the struggle that we all face with with different kinds of temptations across the board. Uh, but we ought to be coming back to the cross, right? That's that's part of what uh, you know. Paul is in in uh, Colossians is combating false ideas and things that are coming into the church, but they have consequences within our behavior. And, and some of that begins to get exposed over time as well. 
And so it's, we're constantly need to be drawing ourselves back to Jesus Christ, back to the cross, back to what he accomplished on our behalf. You know, Paul starts this section about wanting us to grow in our assurance, to know that we know the gospel, to know that we embrace the gospel of Christ and to be growing in that, that he wants that for our lives. Well, in order to do that, we do have to grow in our knowledge of Christ. And that comes through studying the Word of God, spending our time in prayer, spending time with Him as He has revealed Himself in His Word. And, but it, when it comes to apologetic conversations, this helps us kind of to, um, again, we're not getting into methodology really at this point. We're laying some, you know, kind of some foundational uh, levels for, for how we engage with uh, unbelievers and how we talk to them about things of the Lord. We're beginning with a foundation of understanding where does knowledge come from? Where does truth come from? And truth only can be accounted for in a biblical worldview. Outside of a biblical worldview, the concept of truth becomes very nebulous and it becomes very, um, uh, what's the right word? Yeah, very subjective. Yeah, truth becomes very subjective. And yet, the word itself assumes objectivity. I agree you know, that, that, our, that our hearts would be knit together in love, that the community of, of, a, of a local church body is so critical for the growth of a believer. Absolutely. Very good. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut us off there.